Hey guys, this is Jake Blum. Welcome to our show, Quakers and Makers, the very first podcast dedicated to finding the best and brightest UPenn alumni around the country. We're going to hear their stories, successes, failures, and most importantly, the lessons they learned along the way. Without further ado, let's start the show. Hi, everyone. I am really excited to be here today with Cynthia Greenwald, who is a peak performance consultant and social capital coach. Hi, Cynthia. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me, Jake. We're excited to have you. So what you do is very unique, and I want to come back to that in a little bit so that our listeners can get a sense for what you do. But as you know, this is Quakers and Makers. We do have a pen focus on our show. So uh, I actually see that you're a double pen grad. So tell us a little bit about what schools you went to when you graduated and what you focused on. So I guess the best way to put the multiple numbers, so I'm a third generation I guess a double pen in that only because Penn and Wharton undergrad, that's where sure. people will kind of think of me as being in two schools. Cause I really do relate to both as distinct, just gifts in my life. My sure. parents met Penn, my dad's father, my grandfather was a big part of Penn and shaping the campus in some ways. So it was kind of fun when I was there to see like, oh my God, there's Gramps Nay. You know, so it was like really a weird experience being at Penn because I'd grown up going to football games since I was a little tot. And I actually never thought I'd go there. I just thought it was the school where my parents went and where we had family reunions. I actually never put two and two together that I would go there. So it means a lot. So Wharton undergrad was also kind of special because my mom was the first woman to graduate from Wharton undergraduate. It wow. helps that her class was the first class to have women and her last name started with the letter B. So she was literally the first woman to graduate wow. from Wharton undergrad. So it's kind of cool because she's a total trailblazer, pioneering spirit. She's yep. not alive anymore, but that was a um, big deal. She was always blazing trails and I got to follow in her footsteps, but I never thought of it as following. I had other schools in mind. I was a swimmer. So I was looking at universities that had extraordinary swim teams. And then right as I was getting ready to start doing applications, I put two and two together that Wharton ranked high on the business school list was at the same <laughs> school that my parents went to. And that was really what sealed the deal. I remember thinking, wow, because I grew up in Michigan and in the early 80s, Penn had not done a really great marketing job yet in the sure. Midwest. Nowadays, it's, of course, well known. But back sure. then it was a disconnect and I had a kind of, and they never pressured me, thank goodness. And I was able to really choose to be there because I wanted to study business right away instead of graduate. Awesome. That's a great story and really interesting that your mom was the first woman to graduate Wharton. That's a pretty interesting fun fact. Wharton undergrad, just to be Wharton clear. Undergrad. And so you studied business right away. So tell us how you used what you learned at Penn and at Wharton to do what you do now, which is being a peak performance consultant and social capital coach. And I guess before we get into the details, what the heck do those two things mean? <laughs> That's great. That's a really great thing. So I have been self-employed since my mid-20s. So okay. I got to create and design my career over the years. So if anyone's listening, if I'm class of 87, that makes me, I've just turned 56 to kind of get the age in someone's brain. And what's interesting is I peak performance coach. I was an elite athlete. I was very lucky as a young kid. I think it was at 14, I was state champion in swimming. And I started hitting all these milestones of accomplishment as an athlete. And I always had my best 
seasons were when I had a very powerful relationship with my coach. I had okay. so many coaches over those years. And the coaches that were the ones that bugged me because they would not let me slack and they wouldn't let me slide. And I hated them and loved them because I performed so well with them. And the same in school. I mean, my French teacher was one of the scariest teachers. This is in eighth grade. And I was so accomplished in French because she was so tough with me. So I responded well to high level accountability when someone knew what I was made of. Like they saw my potential and wouldn't back down. And I realized that if someone's committed to greatness, that's the biggest gift. So I decided to design my life around partnering with people, playing a big game and being that space for them to invent, design, declare what they're committed to, look at what blocks are there, what kind of tools and systems will accelerate and be catalysts for their growth. And really, I'm interested in the quantum physics has been a passion. So which, by the way, I did not study at Penn, but I did find some things at Penn that make sense that I would be interested. So the athletics was the beginning. And then at Penn, I was studying at Wharton. I got terribly bored and I started to take courses in the fine arts school because I'm also a photographer and a poet. So I thought, I'll just take some classes over there. And wouldn't you know, it was in a sculpture, actually it was though, through the fine arts school, a kind of a pre-architecture course where I met that a guest lecturer come in who brought in Myers-Briggs. And Myers-Briggs is just one of those very powerful behavioral tools that let people get in touch with what are their strengths, what are some of the areas that just aren't calling to them, and how do we speak to those strengths? And I remember thinking after I discovered sort of my profile, if you will, that I was trying to like stick myself into the being like a peg, the wrong size peg. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I want everyone to know where they're magical and where they're amazing and to have full permission to be their unlimited self. And I started giving workshops to my sorority sisters, which was another thing I did at Penn, which was I started one of the sororities. So it was a really important leadership moment for me. And the idea that people could be their most magnanimous, magnificent self was appealing to me as an athlete. And then later in terms of behavioral and leadership styles. So I began to that, which really is now my career. I'm a public speaker, I'm a motivational, not really motivational because people have to motivate themselves. So I do work with un, like unleashing potential and that's how it all kind of ties in. Wow. There's so much to unpack there. I'm just looking at the <laughs> notes that I wrote down. So design your career. How cool is that? How many people out there are listening who have either designed their career or maybe aren't happy and want to design their career? You can take some inspiration from Cynthia. And then the type of work you do, high level of accountability, the unlimited self, unleashed greatness. I mean, who doesn't want those things? I'm getting excited just thinking about it. And then not to mention that you're a swimmer, you're a photographer, a poet, and into quantum physics. I mean, is there anything that you don't do or did we, did we oh, cover I, I did when I got injured at Penn. My junior year, I finally quit swimming because of my injury. And I auditioned for an acapella group. And out of like 60 of us that auditioned, three of us got in. So I even got <laughs> <laughs> So just add acapella to the list. Uh, you know, so I, I guess I'm, you're right. Like, I believe that there's so this idea that we're limitless. I love that movie, Limitless. But even the movie, The Matrix, you know, anything where we kind of, we, we buy into, and I do it too, some version or some self image of who I think I am. And this is just the human condition like, to use words like, oh, I'm athletic. Oh, I'm not athletic. Or I'm an organized type. Oh, I'm not an organized type. Whatever 
label we stick on ourselves or labels that came along as we grew up. And then we decide that's who we are. But the thing about quantum physics and brain science is saying, well, actually, we're frequencies. We're made up so much of like thought and intention. And at any time I can create new intentions and new senses of who I am. So whenever someone learns something new, like a language or they learn martial arts or something new before we learn it, we're like, ah, I'm not a paddle tennis player. There was one point when I was not. And I spent one summer in New York City learning paddle tennis. And I was so bad for about 90 days. And this gets into how my picture of myself was. And all I could hear was this little voice and I called the amygdala. It's part of the brain is like, ah, this is not you. And I was so bad. And my amygdala thinks I'm so good at things that it was embarrassed by the fact that I was hitting these embarrassing shots. They're going in the net, going out. I'd have this perfect setup and I would just whiff the ball. And all I could hear was sin. You suck. Get off the court now. This is terrible. What are you doing this for? I mean, this is my own self-talk. I'm hearing this. And I remember at one moment I said, no, I know how this works. You have to suck at something before you become great at something. So because I had that ability to kind of withstand this awful feelings of being humiliated and looking like a fool and wanting to be number one, that I was actually the worst of this group of about 16 people that play doubles. And I was always paired up with the best player because she was so good. I played racquetball in college. And here I was paired up with her because I was the worst. And within 90 days, because I was able to distinguish and I found it so quick, what's like, what were the accountability structures? I committed to go every twice every week, even when I didn't want to. I created a support structure called this like community. I promised to them that I'd be there. And then I was able to hear because of all the years I've dealt with peak performance, I could hear that that's not. There's the, the amygdala's voice, which is the voice of reason and limit and, oh, that's not what you want to do. And I said, nope, I'm going to stick it out. And after about 90 days, something happened. And people who know about mastery, there's a moment where the tipping point kicks in. And it's as if my neural net and everything just hit a tip. And I became, now I played tennis like at 16. I remember I was a swimmer. Tennis kind of went into the past, but I played tennis about three or four summers and got pretty good as a summer tennis player. All of a sudden, I became the, I went from the last worst to the second best in a matter of like that one week. And everybody looked around and said, Oh, you can't play with her anymore because now you can't have the one and two pairing up against everybody else. Sure, but I sure. remember as a lesson for me, like a metaphor of how close I was every single time I stepped on that court to just want to just sell out and get out of there. And I just stuck it out and I've been able to work with people about what does that voice say when we're up against that sort of edge of our comfort zone to break through. Yeah, so that's so interesting. And I was going to ask you a question and then you answered it. <laughs> so I think you were tapping into my frequencies. And, and the question I was going to ask, I just want to recite what you said, just to make sure I have it correct, was what is the hack or what is the top thing that you really help your clients with? And it really sounds like it's a combination of controlling our biological instincts the amygdala, as well as setting yourself up for success by creating a plan, creating a community, creating accountability and support structures, and that those two things together can be really, really powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really well recapped. In fact, the best analogy I like to give people is if I decided to become fluent in a language that I don't currently either know at all, I asked them, like, what would you recommend I do if I decided I want to become fluent in Italian? They're like, oh, well, and if you break it down, the four things that I would need to do to get good and fluent in French or Italian, 
is what we would do if we want to become masterful at real estate investing. We're suddenly know ourselves as like brilliant in the new area. And that is simply, obviously, seek out a tutor slash expert, someone who knows more than me to kind of mentor me into that new commitment. Another thing is pair up with a one-on-one peer accountability partner. A third is to plug into a team, a mastermind group, a boot camp, an environment, like really like take a look at our social circles and our business circles. Because if I want to get good at real estate investing and nobody around me is doing it, I need to seek out communities that are speaking that language. And then the fourth is just listening to like tapes or tapes. How dated is that? <laughs> like audios and you know video clips. And you know, because I still have tapes. I still have those tapes. I started listening to tapes in my 20s because I knew that I needed to reprogram the neural net for whatever that new area of thinking that I'm committed to. So that's how I have people and it's committing to those structures, but always inside a vision. Like what's the vision that inspires us? And then work back from there. So I want to switch gears for a sec because we have a lot of ground to cover and we try and keep these episodes short and sweet. So switching gears, you were for a long time a BNI executive director. So I myself am also a proud member of a BNI group. But for those listeners who maybe aren't familiar with BNI, could you tell us a little bit about it? And can you tell us about what you accomplished in your time there? Absolutely. So it was in the late 90s that I was living in South Florida. And through a network of people that I had known pretty much since I graduated from Penn and lived up in Boston, I get this call. Hey, we're bringing B&I to South Florida. Are you interested? I said, like, what are you talking about? Oh, just come to one of our meetings. We have a new group opening up in Palm Beach Gardens. I said, okay. And I got there at like 6.30 in the morning. I slept an hour and something up. You know, it's 5.30. I left my house, got to this breakfast meeting. And I remember seeing, because I was always into networking. I've always been a socializer, bringing people together, being a connector. And I thought, oh, well, I'm running my consulting business, but I'm not doing anything else at 7 a.m. So I thought I could do part-time, bring B&I to Fort Lauderdale. That was the invitation to open up the Broward County, Fort Lauderdale region as the executive director. And then I did it with Miami-Dade. And that was in 97 and 98 that I opened those up. And for 10 years, I did that. I went from zero chapters because no one had heard of it. I want to just rewind for a second, just so the listeners understand, what is B&I? So it's... The idea of, and BNI was not the first to do this, they just perfected the model, which is if you put a group of business owners and business professionals together, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 40 or more, but they're each in a different profession and they act as each other's allies, literally acting as each other's sales force. So if there's a realtor there, whether it's commercial and there's another one who's residential and there's a commercial insurance agent, maybe there's a chiropractor and a banker and financial advisor, and they're all in different worlds, but their clients all need stuff. So they're there to educate each other about what they do so that someone who says, wow, my client just mentioned that they're going to start a new business. And what you do websites for new businesses, oh my gosh, let me refer you. So it's a way of educating people what like, what are the tip-offs that help people think of when they're going to need the services of each other and just to be of value and make those kind of collaborative raving fan type dynamics. Yeah. I think my chapters average about 25 to 30 members. And I opened up 51 of these groups. And so I got to be known as the queen of networking in that part of Florida. And then I sold it in 2008 and moved to New York City a couple of years later. It's just actually a year and a half later. Wow. The queen of networking. That's a great title. And from everything that from our conversations before and from what we're talking about today, you're just this person who exudes outward. You enjoy connecting, you enjoy learning. And so one of the things we spoke about before was that you're studying Richard Branson. So tell us a little bit about 
why Richard Branson, what's so interesting, and maybe how it ties into what you're up to today. What I admire about him is he represents, I actually have my clients. and A client could be someone that works with me individually, but I do mastermind groups over the years. And I'll pose a question, which is like a thing that helps us catch where we've hit sort of an imaginary lid to our potential. And it's when someone says something like, oh my gosh, I have so much on my plate. I train my clients to listen for that. Like the minute they say, oh my gosh, I have so much on my plate. I imagine to imagine, like, so like, well, what's on your plate? You've got like maybe two or three business projects, a couple kids, they got their sweetheart, they got their hobby, they got their finances, they got the grandma that they're taking care of. You know, like, let's just add it all up. It's like 25 things. And then I say, okay, there's your plate with 25 things on it. Well, let's look at Richard Branson. Ever heard of that guy? And they're like, yeah. I go, he's got about 400. I think the last count I have was like 405 companies, something like that. I said, can you imagine? He's got 405 businesses plus his kids and his properties and his boats. And you have to add everything up. He's got 425 compared to say my 25. And when he gets a phone call, when someone says, hey, got an idea for company 406 or whatever number he's up to it. <laughs> his response is simply bring it on. Like he doesn't say no. He says, let me evaluate it. Let's see what's possible here. And that's the difference. So I ask people to, whenever they hear themselves say, oh my God, I got so much on my plate. I ask them to just sit there and imagine if Richard Brands could be beamed into our body. And there he was looking at our 25 things. What would he do? I'll send you the link. But I wrote a blog. Literally the name of the blog is what would Sir Richard Branson do? And then the subtitle of it is Overriding Overwhelm and Accessing Our Limitless Self. So he is just sort of an analogy of like how we can get stuck. But if he were sitting there at living our life for a moment, he'd probably just laugh and see like, really, Cynthia, you're going to be stressed out over your 25 things. That's hilarious. So it kind of gets <laughs> us to kind of giggle about our own self-perception that we think 25 is the max, but maybe we have way more to go. We're just not used to thinking of ourselves as that vast. Yeah. It sounds like Richard Branson really just embodies everything that you're about. And it's living proof that we are capable of achieving great things, of doing many things. And it starts with believing. On the topic of believing, so I want to talk about a couple of things. One, you are starting a YouTube channel, which I want to hear more about. I want our listeners to know about. And two is that you are becoming known as the amygdala wrangler. So could you kind of tie that in with everything we've spoken about so far? And yeah, absolutely. So the amygdala, which to spell it out for the listeners, it think of the first name of a woman named Amy, and then her middle initial is G. And then her last name is Dala, D-A-L-A. So <laughs> Amy. So some of my clients call her Amy G. And then it's just amygdala. And what's interesting about the amygdala is in a quick nutshell, it's our survival mechanism that will resist anything new because anything new can't be predicted. And if the amygdala's job is to guarantee my survival, it can't do that, which it can't predict if I'm going to make it. Can't, oh, I've never been down that path. I don't have a pattern for that path. So therefore I can't predict if there's a saber tooth tiger lurking on that path. So let me just stop Cynthia in her tracks. And it will use all kinds of means to stop me from going into the unknown. It doesn't know that the unknown might actually be a good move. It just relates from survival. So the mechanisms of the amygdala, it's not about getting rid of. There's even a fun joke I have with my clients, which is, do you know what your amygdala ringtone is? Like it talks to us in a <laughs> way. Well, 
Oh my gosh. So the two <laughs> ways that my amygdala like hijacks me is I get headaches and I get flu-like symptoms, which is terrible during a pandemic to have that kind of situation. It makes me feel like I'm not feeling well so that I shrink into my familiar comfort zone. I stop taking bold moves. Like I'm telling you, I signed this huge thing that was a major game. It was 10 times bigger than anything I'd ever done. And I started getting sick and I went, wait a minute, this is my amygdala. And after that moment of awareness, all those like icky symptoms evaporated instantly. So that's kind of my amygdala. My amygdala talks to me, tries to kind of take me out at the in with my well-being. It makes me think I'm tired and I don't feel well. And it's just the amygdala's like, eh, she's not going there. Let's just give her a case of something so she stops. And then the way it ties into what I do is that once we can catch it, then we can actually do something about overriding it. And the word wrangler isn't about defeating the amygdala. It's just to kind of get into a dance with it, to become masterful at the dance. And that's the access to peak performance. We're coming up on our time here. So if anybody wants to reach you or your business or your YouTube channel, what's the best way for them to uh, connect with you? Yeah. So whether it's LinkedIn, the Cynthia Greenawalt with a little A in the middle there, Green A Walt, mm-hmm. or on my YouTube channel, which will have a lot of, you know, I've been filming footage for months. It's just being cool, being able to load it there. And it's just ideas on how we can wrangle the amygdala in some of the key areas for success. That's really what the YouTube channel is about. For all the listeners out there, I strongly encourage you to check out Cynthia's LinkedIn profile to check out her YouTube uh, series when it launches. We'll definitely have links in the bio for this episode. And uh, Cynthia, it's been a pleasure chatting with you as always, and we'll hope to see you back sometime soon. true joy. Thank you, Jake. We'll talk soon. This podcast has been brought to you by me, Jake Blum, a fellow UPenn alum and financial advisor. Until next time, be well. We'll see you then.